I'm Ted Seides, and this is Private Equity Deals. This show is an exploration of deals in the private markets. Through conversations with private equity managers, we'll dive into individual deals to learn about deal dynamics, companies, and ownership that make private equity a force in institutional portfolios and the global economy. Season one of Private Equity Deals focused on owners you know. Season two focuses on companies you know. You can keep up to date and join our mailing list at capitalallocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of capital allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. In episode seven of season two of Private Equity Deals, David Rue and Tom O'Rourke discuss Mavis Tire Express Services. Dave and Tom lead Baypine, a private equity firm founded in 2019 that manages $3 billion across healthcare, consumer, industrials, and business services with a focus on growth through digital transformation. Mavis is an independent tire dealer and aftermarket auto service provider with over 1,100 locations in the United States. The chain dates back to 1949 and has experienced a growth explosion the last decade, adding 1,000 service centers since 2015. Our conversation covers Baypine's strategy of digitally transforming core economy businesses, Mavis's 74-year history, the sourcing of the investment, due diligence, differentiating Baypine's bid, executing the digital strategy, and navigating macroeconomic headwinds. Season two of Private Equity Deals is brought to you by Canoe Intelligence, whose technology allows investors to streamline their alternative investment process through AI-powered document collection and data extraction. To learn more, go to canoeintelligence.com slash TED. Throughout season two, Griff Norville from Hamilton Lane, a Canoe client and investor, will describe how Canoe enabled Hamilton Lane to massively increase the efficiency of processing thousands of fund investments and in turn assist Hamilton Lane in scaling to an $800 billion juggernaut. Griff joined Hamilton Lane 13 years ago and focuses on leveraging data and technology for Hamilton Lane's research, monitoring, and reporting. In today's segment, Griff describes how Canoe integrates across Hamilton Lane's organization. So in addition to just the number of funds that your team's able to process, what are some of the other ways that using Canoe's allowed you to kind of integrate and improve what you're doing? Well, capturing the data is a means to an end. What we want to do with this data is understand what's driving value in the portfolios that we're monitoring, how we benchmark, how can we forecast out behavior? That's all the value-added activity. And so what Canoe understands very well is that they sit in an ecosystem where individual investors have their tools of choice, their dashboards, their analytics systems. Canoe can take care of all those problems around gathering the data, extracting it, validating it, and then it will send it downstream. And so a huge value add for us is we've been able to focus on the analytics pieces. And in-house, we build our own analytics software called Cobalt LP. We've integrated that directly with Canoe. Canoe can send the data to Cobalt LP, and we can spend all the time on the front office side analyzing it. Have you thought about other ways 
and there's canoe or other software that you could use across the business. So you sort of, you mentioned the front office, then you even get to the client side. Where does all that technology work through the process for the firm as a whole? We've been adding technology to the entire spectrum of our activities, starting on the back office with canoe. You also have the access points to the managers themselves. So how do we increase the access to, let's say, the wealth management side of the marketplace, the high net worth individuals? How do we increase their access to this marketplace? And here we've invested in technology to automate the subscription process, which has traditionally been very manual, very paper-driven. We're invested in companies that handle aspects of that. We're invested in companies to automate background checks, AML, KYC, know your customer, anti-money laundering activities. We're invested in groups that can then put your private market investments in the context of your total portfolio. And that's going to be key as this asset class expands to the wealth management world. If you get out to the cutting edge activities that we're, that we're undertaking, we're invested in groups that are innovating in AI and tokenization, which is some really exciting areas for the AI side. ChatGPT is is all the rage right now. A lot of people are talking about it and interested in it. We're working with companies that are using generative AI to help coach investors through how to allocate in the private markets, how to put that in terms of their larger portfolio. On the tokenization side, we're working with groups that can open up access to this asset class for much smaller commitment amounts than might otherwise be operationally efficient for the way the subscription process traditionally works. So really two exciting areas there. Please enjoy my conversation with David Rue and Tom O'Rourke. Dave, Tom, thanks for doing this. Our pleasure. Thank you. Well, why don't we start with just a brief background of Baypine? Baypine was formed three years ago, summer of 2020, auspiciously, just at the start of the pandemic. The company was formed specifically to help non-technology firms adopt, implement, and benefit from better use of technology. What we focus on are really core economy businesses. They tend to be in industrial, service, consumer, and healthcare services. Well, we're going to dive into Mavis. And maybe, Tom, take it off. What is this company? Mavis is a leading auto services tire platform. They have around 1,400 stores across the country. And if you're getting your tires changed or need other types of auto service, they're the place to go. We have a couple brands, including Mavis. There's also Town Fair Tire, Brakes Plus, and Express Oil as well. Why was this business a fit for you guys? I think what we're really looking to do at Baypine is by businesses that have really great fundamentals where we see an opportunity to take it to the next level through digital transformation. And for us, Mavis checked all those boxes in spades. What was the history of Mavis before your ownership? It was formed in 1947 by the Sobraro family, originally the mom and dad. It's actually a concatenation of the mother's and father's names. And the two sons, Stephen and David, who run it today, started working there, I think, when they were 14 and 15 years old. So it's been in the family for that entire time. 
What are the rough economics of a business like this look like? We really look at it at the unit economic level. And so on a typical Mavis store, they might be able to generate a million to $2 million of revenue each year. And they'll bring in anywhere from three to $400,000 of profit. And as you can imagine, as you gain more scale, there's a lot of benefits that accrue in terms of the way that you're able to buy tires and then really invest in the platform. And that's one of the things when we looked at Mavis, we liked a lot was their ability to invest in systems and technology to drive better economics that have allowed them to differentiate operationally versus the competition. What does it cost historically to set up a storefront? It costs anywhere from a couple hundred thousand all the way up to a million dollars, depending on how much you're really building it to suit and whether or not you leverage the opportunity to do a sale leaseback in terms of how you own your real estate or not. So we dive into this deal. How did you come across the company? I originally came across it five years ago as I was getting to know the auto services space, as one does as they're spending time in the investing world and really felt like the Sabaro brothers had built an incredible business. And then when I joined Baypine, as we were getting the firm started, that's really as this relationship developed. It's a funny story because when Tom let his many friends and colleagues know that he was joining Baypine, which was going to specialize in digital transformation and help for core economy companies anxious to be more digital, David Zabaro put his hand up and said, that sounds really interesting. I'd love to talk to you. And in the middle of the pandemic, David drove up from New York to Boston to spend a day with us at a time when you couldn't fly because he was so interested in what we were doing, not as a private equity firm, but to talk more about what the digital opportunities might be for his own business. And that was really what I think um, sparked the opportunity was a very detailed, almost day-long conversation around what digital might mean for a tire business. What went into those five years and prior to get to the point where he's reaching out to you to say, hey, what you're doing sounds interesting? They had been owned by a prior private equity firm. It's always had a heavy founder ownership component with David and his brother. But there was another private equity firm that had owned the business. And for a long period of time, they continued to grow in compound through opening new stores and growing through M&A. During that time frame, it was more of the same, which has been a great story of going from five stores when David took it over to over 1,400 today. And when he came across... Baypine and what we were doing with respect to digital transformation, I think he realized there was a unique inflection point in his business that we could help accelerate through our capabilities and approach. I would underscore that David's experience as CEO is incredibly typical. And by that, I mean many, many CEOs of great core economy businesses have this realization that they could use more technology, they'd like to be more digital, but they're not quite sure how. They aren't technical. Their management teams aren't technically fluent. Their investors aren't technical. Their board members aren't technical. So where do they start? There's just not a first rung on the ladder. I think what was happening at the firm 
was he had a very clear sense of what the opportunities were, but not quite sure how to prosecute them. He had an awareness and a felt need, and we became kind of a catalyst for you know how to get started. What is that conversation like before you get involved? How do you engage with that company or with that owner? I don't think it's different whether it's private equity owned, whether it's family owned, or whether it might be publicly traded. The kind of common thing is this awareness and sense of opportunity that the management teams bring. In other words, what's differentiating in our world is this ability to be helpful around setting priorities, recognizing opportunities, kind of animating our network of vendors and experts, et cetera, because everybody has the same capital. Everybody has the same spreadsheet. Everybody's working to the same set of target returns. And so when we all run the math and do our diligence, the numbers look very similar. This is about what we can afford to pay. What's differentiating is how much help, real help, in the form of digital alpha, we can provide after the fact. What did you find in the diligence process? There was a lot to like about the business and a lot to like about management. I think one of the first findings we uncovered was just how resilient this industry is. If you think about tires, it's not the thing that comes to mind when you think about a bright, shiny object or a bright, shiny industry, but it's incredibly resilient. If you have a flat tire, whether there's a good economy or a bad economy, you need to get your tires changed. And as you think about a lot of the dynamic changes happening across the retail landscape, the emergence of Amazon, the emergence of electric vehicles, the more we dug in, the more we realized how much the tire category was either resilient from that, Amazon can't change your tires, or benefited from it as electric vehicles continue to penetrate, it actually creates more wear and tear in tires. So I think the first big diligence finding for us was just how resilient the category was, which was really appealing to us. And then I think the second big finding for us was how much of a high quality management team and how much of an aligned management team we really had in our hands. David and Steven took over this business 30 to 40 years ago They've been involved with the business for more than that, as David alluded to, and they've built an incredible business and an incredible team. And the last big finding for us was just how much opportunity there was to continue to grow and how much opportunity there was to accelerate the trajectory of the business, both through the ways they've grown historically, which has been opening new stores at very accretive returns on capital, 50 to 100% type returns on capital, and also acquiring existing businesses in what's a very large and fragmented market. And then the last piece was the digital story that we tried to help co-create with the company and am now working to accelerate. What was that digital story that you saw? It really comes in, I would say, three main flavors. One is the customer experience itself really wasn't fully digital. at had a website, but it really wasn't a modern e-commerce oriented experience. Secondly, there was an opportunity internally at each of the stores to instrument and automate what goes on there so that the store manager has control over scheduling, pricing, the efficiency of all of the cars going into the bay so you get good capacity utilization. 
And then the third thing is really just digital marketing, the ability to find the right customer, communicate with them efficiently, and get them into and part of the customer journey. And what did you see as some of the issues or risks in the deal? There was a couple big things we thought a lot about. Some of them were the things that I alluded to about some of the attributes of the industry, but we were very mindful of how the future of electrification was going to impact the auto services industry and what that meant for Mavis. We were incredibly mindful of the fact that fundamentally Mavis was a retailer in a world that's being upended by e-commerce and Amazon within the retail landscape. And then finally, the other big thing we had to wrestle with was it was a great business with a great team, and you usually have to pay a full price for that. And so getting our arms around how much we'd be able to lean in and really building conviction in the ways we could accelerate the business to justify the price we ultimately had to pay. So everything you talked about so far, you got to know the management team, it fit so neatly with the strategy you're pursuing. You'd like to think, hey, they just want to do the deal with you and you work on a price, but it was from public that this was an auction with a, you know, a bunch of big competitors. I'd love to hear how that process worked and maybe just take it at the beginning of that auction process what was your mindset? How do you think about the bids and, and how did the process play out? It was a delimited process, meaning that there were three other very capable firms invited to participate along with ourselves, all of which were bigger, older, and more established. And ultimately, I think after we all did our work, there was a very similar point of view. Good business, attractive economics, nice growths, fantastic management team. And what I believe was distinguishing was the fact that we came to the party with a very comprehensive, fully articulated presentation about what the digital opportunities were. Six different use cases, timing, and we're able to translate all of that into incremental EBITDA, which would drive valuation. And since the management team were going to be significant investors alongside us, that really mattered to them. And I think was dispositive in the end in terms of making us a compelling choice. David Sabaro was the CEO co-CEO of the business with his brother, Stephen, but also a significant investor in the business. And so the decision was not just around valuation alone, but really finding a partner that could help take the business to the next level. And just by way of example, the fateful trip that David took up to Boston that we talked about where we kind of on a you know napkin sketched out some digital ideas, that was a year ahead of any process. And so we were very much out in front of this, building the conviction and building the blueprint for what we could do to the business that would really separate us. Just because it was reported, I could say, you know, those other three, KKR, Carlisle, and a blend of Bain Berkshire, as you said, these are large, sophisticated firms. Great firms. Yeah. All of them. All of whom have big pocketbooks to pay big prices. So alongside of the articulation of that digital opportunity, how did that price auction play out? I think everybody leaned in hard, and we were all prepared to pay full prices. But I think I would just underscore that it's a very high quality business with excellent top line growth, 
terrific profitability, good cash flow conversion, excellent return on invested capital statistics. So all of the things that you would want to see as a BDI'd financial professional were there. But what excited us was this kind of next leg of growth and opportunity, which we think skewed the potential returns to the upside because we felt that there was this underexploited digital opportunity that really gave us conviction. When you've built a relationship with a management team going into a process like that, do you end up having any favorable looks? You've got four competitors, they're going to place a bid. Maybe they're all plus or minus similar. Maybe you have a vision that others don't. Kind of curious how that existing relationship worked its way through the process of winning the deal. It's a great question. I think there's a couple ways it plays itself through. I think first, your ability to gain conviction in the bet sooner is a key advantage because instead of spending a lot of time focused on areas that are kind of the baseline understanding of the business, you're able to spend more of your time on what are some of the upside things that might allow us to differentiate our bid. And so I think that's one key piece of it. And then I think another key piece of it is management and existing investors I think do value and new investors coming in that understand their business and have a personal relationship because they're going to be working with that partner moving forward. And so I think those two things in particular really can create an advantage. The little anecdote I would give you is everybody has learned that digital is important and every modern private equity firm has a page in their deck with saying that we love digital. The difference is, is that it for us, it's central to the thesis, half of our senior team, our operators, and we don't have a separate tech team. We have a group of senior folks who have lived this our whole professional lives. And so part of what I think worked for our discussion with the Sabrower brothers was not us talking technical. It was us saying, if we do X, Y, and Z, that's going to put one more person a day in every store, and that's worth $80 million of EBITDA, and that's worth a billion dollars of valuation. Being able to translate digital investment opportunity into an operational advantage, and then to be able to articulate that in a financially coherent way is so confidence-inspiring that, look, it's not just a bunch of tech people who may or may not understand my business. They understand the whole business model and how employing technology in a focused, cost-effective way drives return. In this type of auction, was it a multi-round bidding process? It was very similar to what you'd see across many types of private equity auctions in the sense that there was an initial round of bidding and then a follow-up round or two. There was multiple rounds, but nothing outside the typical standard of a private equity type of process. Yeah. Standard fare, make your bid, more would be better. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah. So what was it like when the call came in that you won the auction? It was thrilling. I mean, for me, it was a defining moment for really the history of Baypine. We we almost affectionately refer to David Zabarro as almost one of the founders of Baypine that doesn't work at Baypine. But I remember when we were going back and forth in the final throws of it. And, you know, there was just a couple details to work out. And 
we sort of got the call that we had prevailed. And I think we all got a little bit of sleep because we had been going around the clock. And then we celebrated. Sure. I mean, it's a little bit of a David and Goliath story based on size, size of fun. It's a new firm. And it's a unique strategy. So it was really, for us, very gratifying to see the confidence being placed in us as a team and in the firm, particularly in the early going, to do such a significant transaction. I remember Dave called me shortly after we prevailed to celebrate, and he also sort of made a comment that always stuck with me, which was, we might have set the record for AUM to TEV in terms of <laughs> what we had just done. <laughs> or, or I guess TEV to AUM, if you, if you will. So after you win the business, now you've already articulated with the management team what the game plan is going to be. How did you get started? First thing we did was really go into detail around the digital blueprint, which we had done towards the end of the auction process and really flesh out how we would approach this. And so that led to, you know, people talk about 100-day plans and value creation blueprints. That was the first phase, was really getting into more detail around what we saw, comparing that with what David and Steven and the team saw, and then aligning on a six-month plan for getting started. Any surprises in doing that exercise? No surprises in the core business. I think that all felt really similar to what we thought in diligence. The only thing that was a little bit different was just the unique spin that David and Steven put on some of the ideas we had. As Dave mentioned, we had six use cases. We really prioritized that down to three use cases around a new website, digital awareness and marketing, and then a new operating system. And the new operating system was sort of a blend of a few use cases we had, but really reflected a lot of the day-to-day reality that David and Steven were living. So as you rolled out each of those three use cases, what were the changes in the website? We're currently two years in and, and we're in the middle of those, but at the highest and most simplistic level, it's about making the website a lot more user-friendly so that it's easier to buy and make tire appointments online. And so just a little bit more of a simplistic feel and an easy user interface with the view that no one kind of is excited to go buy new tires for the most part. It's something that happens to you. And when that does happen to you, <laughs> we want to make it as easy as possible. It's a little bit like going to the dentist, right? I mean, where, you know, buying new tires does not typically inspire joy. And it's usually because something went wrong, right? You got a flat tire, you know, banged up your car or something. And so you want to make it simple. You want to make it efficient. You want to make it a little bit fun. And being able to represent that digitally and then have that digital experience match up with the user experience in the store was the critical challenge. What are the pieces of using the technology to improve the internal operations that would translate over from that digital experience online into the store? There's a couple big things. One is, as you think about more users online buying tires, that has to connect into somewhere to actually make it all work. And so the internal piece of that is really the thing that connects your experience as a user with the company delivering you a new tire with a specific appointment date. I think the other piece that has been really encouraging to the upside is just the way in which we're unlocking new capacity at the store through these internal investments we're making. 
you can analogize it to creating a website for the store technicians, the store managers, those in the warehouse that have much more visibility and are able to manage supply and demand much more dynamically. And if you think about all the operational complexity that that can ultimately simplify, it opens up capacity at the store so that on a Saturday morning, when there's a lot of people, we can figure out what the bottleneck is and either add more store technicians to be able to fulfill that demand or manage supply demand in ways that distribute across different time parts better and day parts better. What's an example on a random Saturday morning where putting that technology in place actually drove that efficiency? David Sabaro has a great anecdote for this, which is when we actually got into it, this is kind of back to the thing that surprised us to the upside. He said, the biggest opportunity for this business is not spilling business. And what he meant by that is he thought that there was certain peak times when people would come in the store, they'd say, I need to get my tire fixed. It's going to take you 15 minutes or a half hour and they leave. And he said, I can't tell you how many people leave. That's a lost customer that showed up and we couldn't fulfill that demand. And really the Mavis operating system that we're building right now is meant to manage that supply demand much more dynamically so that we don't have that leakage in the system. And so that's the example that David kept citing is that person that comes in and then leaves. Specific example is half of the people who come into a tire store haven't made an appointment. They just drive in. And Saturday morning, you know, you drop the kids off at soccer practice and you think, great, I'm gonna get the snow tires on. You go over to the store, there's a big line, and so you go to the store down the street. If we can identify that person and say, great news, we can't handle you right now, but there's a $20 off coupon for Tuesday afternoon, come on back, we capture the person, we get better capacity utilization. And so being able to spread out appointments so there's more space available for the walk-in customers, and for the people who are more flexible, they can come at a different time, making sure you have the right tires available at the store when people get there, which is sort of inventory availability and mix. And then once the person's dropped off their car, being able to tell them, your car is ready in 10 minutes, your car is ready in 30 minutes, so that they know exactly what's happening those are all big pluses on the customer side. And then, as Tom was saying, we can do a much better job of keeping those bays full, which is just like an airline flying with more passengers. And we can do a better job helping the technicians troubleshoot issues as they might arise and making that part of it more efficient, just you know, throughput. So that ties into the digital marketing piece, which is how do you get that soccer mom to inform you that when they're going to the game, you've reached them so that they know to either come in or that there's a coupon available. We joked in the diligence phase that the digital awareness opportunity at Mavis wasn't so much low-hanging fruit as it was fruit on the ground because they simply weren't making significant investments, partly because there was a lot of great investments that the business could make in other places. But what we saw was really an opportunity to just increase awareness. One of the diligence findings that caught me most by surprise in terms of what the opportunity could look like was in markets where we were the biggest competitor, we'd rank sixth through 10th on Google search in terms of you know where we'd show up. And when we talked to David, it was just, I just didn't feel the need to make that investment. And we said, if we did make that investment, we might be able to get more eyeballs that then convert into customers. And so for us, the biggest opportunity was simply increasing top of funnel awareness to then drive better conversion moving forward, just having more people at the top of the funnel. 
The second part of it is to make the customer not a one-time transaction wandering in or making a phone call in, but rather to have an ongoing awareness. And so that if you know who your customers are, you know what other cars they have in the family, you know what those cars are, you know what tires are on those cars, then you can be more proactive where you can say, gee, Ralph or Jane, and send an email or a text saying, time to get the snow tires on, or I see those tires haven't been changed, or we're running a special this week. Those are all things where you can kind of go from more of a individual transaction to something that feels more subscription or membership-like. You talked earlier about being able to translate those digital improvements into bottom line dollars. I'm curious how you model and then track these really upfront expenses so that you know you're getting a high ROI on those investments for the business. Yeah, I think it really starts in the diligence phase by having that mindset because it's something that requires an understanding of the unit economics of the business, as well as really understanding the digital capabilities with an awareness that you're not going to be able to be overly precise. But if you can get in the right zip code, as Dave was saying, if we can bring in another customer to a day, what would that look like? I think that's really the starting point is really calibrating what's the level at which we're trying to quantify this. And then as we go about that, the nice thing about doing that in the upfront diligence phase is those unit economics sort of have drill down submetrics that you can then start to systematically track. And so if we're ultimately trying to drive another customer or two through the front door, that is meaning we're going to drive organic growth in some way that's going to be driven by a certain amount of visitation to the website, a certain level of conversion on the website to the store, and you can start to track those specific metrics. So on top of the single store economics that the digital initiatives are driving, how did you think about growth, either organic growth or acquisitions in the number of stores? This was the starting point off of which our investment was really grounded in. And this was something that they had done consistently over a long period of time. And so they had demonstrated a real repeatable playbook around opening new stores at very accretive returns on capital, as well as simultaneously acquiring the local tire chain that's looking to sell. And that created, just given the amount of fragmentation in the market and the amount of runway, it really created a good underwritable baseline around which we could then project. And then what we've tried to do along those metrics and those value levers in particular is really ask ourselves, how can we accelerate that? Are there scale M&A opportunities that can drive step change increase in the number of units? Are there ways we can accelerate the white space greenfield opportunity? In particular, we hired a gentleman named Tony Suggs, who came from Dollar General, which has done a tremendous job on white space, really with the goal of accelerating our pace of new unit openings. And on both of those dimensions, we're currently tracking ahead of plan and really driving to the upside along those metrics in addition to the digital levers. I would emphasize that our ability to do those two things, increase the pace of M&A and to dramatically increase the pace of new store openings is really based on the fact that we have huge confidence in the operational expertise of that management team to start. In other words, they are 
outstanding. They're the best operators in the industry. And so we felt we had a really solid foundation. It wasn't the kind of thing where we were going to go in and said, let's take three years and fix this up. The business is exceedingly well run to start. And so the more M&A, more store openings, and more digital, we could hit you know those three buttons, in a sense, all at once. When you have that step change inflection and growth in the number of stores, what are some of the frictions that have come into play in scaling? Biggest is just the P&L algebra around it, which is you're investing ahead of growth. And so fundamentally, you're investing in parts of the business by growing the number of people. I mean, to grow out this real estate function, there's fundamentally a lot more people in the real estate division than there used to be. And so you have to have real conviction and the potential returns that these new stores can generate to be able to say, I'm going to upfront invest more in parts of the PL than I otherwise was prepared to do. And so that's the biggest question. Given the strength of the team that David alluded to, that was a very easy decision for us. And one of the things that we think can create superior returns over the long run is being able to invest in fundamentally high ROI opportunities. Curious how you think about financing the acquisitions. You look at when you bought this business a couple of years ago, debt was a lot cheaper than it is today. (laughs) So how has the change in level of interest rates changed how you're thinking about growth? Yeah, I think the first thing is given how strong the team is, they're able to drive significant value very early on when they make an acquisition. And so they're actually able to buy down the multiple to levels that are delevering relative to the capital structure. That being said, we are in a new normal in terms of where rates are. And so on the margin, we're more thoughtful around potentially considering equity financing, depending on the scale of the deal, and making sure we're mindful of where our leverage levels are as we're doing M&A. And to the extent something isn't delevering, really asking ourselves, is this the right deal to do? So I think we've also exerted a lot of discipline around the types of deals we're doing as well. As you look out, You have a business that's been owned by private equity. You're now putting your imprint on it. How do you start thinking about your exit strategy? Exit's something that we like to think about even before we own the business. If we want to be good investors, I think that's something you have to be mindful of. What's great about Mavis is it's got a long-term compounding profile. And so that creates a ton of optionality in when and how we exit. And so for us, there's absolutely, in our view the potential for this to be a very successful public company. And that's, I think, certainly a natural next step for this business in its evolution. That being said, it's a pretty dynamic time in the equity markets. And so if we feel like that's too much dynamism from us at any one point in time, we have the optionality to continue to hold it, continue to compound and consider private sale options as well. But what's been fun about this is across acceleration of new stores considering scale M&A and driving our digital program, we're in no hurry or rush to sell. Especially when you think about it strategically, this is the happy intersection of automotive aftermarket that does well with electrics and internet-protected retail, two sectors that the public market loves and any private investor would want to own. So it's really a terrific profile, whether you stay private or go public. With significant white space. With a ton of white space. 
It's a business that's going to compound. You could hold it for a long time. Maybe down the road, there's continuation funds. There's all kinds of ways now you could continue to hold it. But as you said, you got a great management team with a great business and that could fit in the public markets. How do you guys decide where to take it? First of all, we will be taking our cue from a very, very competent management team. You know, they've been our partners. And the good news is that we have a lot of options here. We're not in a hurry. It's a kind of core part of the Bay Pine thesis is that we want to do fewer, better deals and hold the businesses longer on average, not forever, but longer on average, because we think that we're buying good businesses that have these attractive compounding qualities. And I would just say that being public doesn't mean that you've sold, just means you've got some new partners and it kind of creates a liquidity option around it. It's rare to go through any transaction for a couple of years and not have a few bumps in the road. I'm curious what some of the obstacles you faced in the business. I mean, beyond the pandemic, inflation and soaring interest rates? <laughs> you mean other, other bumps? <laughs> You've highlighted it well. We bought the business effectively in the middle of the pandemic, and then we quickly moved into an inflationary period. I think that's probably been the hardest and trickiest thing to navigate is the dynamic macro. And obviously, related to inflation, needing to find well-skilled labor for the stores in a time when there's a lot of labor shortages, navigating that has been the, the hardest dynamic. I think I would credit David Sabaro, Stephen Sabaro on the team for doing that really well and navigating that as best as could be expected. And I think it's really a testament to really great businesses outperform in dynamic periods. And in some ways, we've tried to take advantage of that by accelerating our organic growth through such a dynamic period. But that's certainly been the trickiest thing to navigate. I would just point out that tires are made of petroleum and that there was huge price pressure in our single largest cost of goods. The management team did an outstanding job of managing that. It was a place where scale really helped, done a really nice job managing inventory, pricing appropriately, and managing costs generally to maintain margins through a very difficult macro period. I mean, two specific examples that I think have highlighted that for me. One is as it relates to the labor availability. David and the team have really focused on creating an internal function around recruiting talent and training talent. Jennifer Pappas at the company leads that effort. And that has allowed us to keep the stores with the right amount of level of labor throughout this dynamic period. And then second, as David alluded to, really being opportunistic around when and how we buy tires to take advantage of this period is also something that's positioned the business quite well. On the other side of the unit economics of a tire with costs going up, managing efficiency to not have to pass through as much, what did they find in passing through some of those cost pressures in the sell-through of tires? It's an inflationary period and their ability to pass through some amount of that to the customer is something that they have executed on. And I think something that in some ways customers have been prepared for simply because we're living in an inflationary period, there's a certain level of labor wage inflation that we're dealing with. 
And there's a certain amount of non-discretionary element to this purchase that is sticky and resilient, which is one of the things that gets back to a key part of our thesis. How does a management team like this think through exactly what price to put on a tire when you have these inflationary pressures? I would think about it as not so much price on a tire, but the price to fulfill a customer requirement. And so it's rare that somebody comes in being a tire expert. Most people are not. And so what they do well is give people a choice. Think about it as, you know, good, better, best. And one of the ways in which people manage their personal budget is they say, all right, well, maybe I can't get the super fancy, but I could mix down and still get a tire that I feel confident is safe for my family and will perform well on my vehicle, but where they can offer affordable options, not just among the brands, but among effectively private label options. As they change that mix shift in, say, tougher economic environment, you expect trade down. Maybe a couple of years ago, people were happy with the more premium tire. How does that affect the economics of the business itself? I would say it's a resilient business. It's not a fully immune business from the consumer cycle. <laughs> and so you'll continue to see strong organic growth, but maybe people will trade down, as David mentioned. Maybe people will buy two tires instead of four tires in a specific period of time. But then one of the things that they've done nicely, which has benefited in a time like this, is they have a private label offering that really delivers a lot of value for the customer. It's better quality than the most premium brand out there at a much better price in a way that works economically for the company as well. How do you think about the next generation of leadership at Mavis? David has done a tremendous job building out the team beneath him. I think within the senior ranks, there's a set of individuals that are really strong leaders. I think Fred Christensen, the CFO, is a great leader. Obviously, David and Stephen from the top provide that example. Jennifer Pappas is the chief administrative officer who's taken on a leadership role. And then the other person that comes to mind that's also been instrumental in our digital transformation work, who's not necessarily officially affiliated with the company, but is helpful, is actually David's daughter, Morgan Savaro. And she's been a great advisor and helpful contributor to a lot of the digital work. And so it really is a strong team from top to bottom. And then across all the brands, there's a leadership structure in place where as they've made acquisitions, they've been able to keep the best talent and allow them to take on bigger parts of the company and continue to grow with Mavis. What are your biggest lessons learned from this deal? I would say that it reinforces a very strong bias we have for investing behind great management teams. We knew we had a pandemic underway because we did it in the middle. We didn't know we would have a supply chain crisis and we didn't know that we would have rip-roaring inflation. And to see how well they have managed through that, made adjustments, has really been fantastic. So I would say I relearned the lesson of how valuable a great team is. I would echo that. And then another lesson for me is the power of having multiple ways to win in investing. If you think about the different bets here between the new stores, the M&A, the digital program, there are really interesting, uncorrelated levers to drive success. All right, Dave, Tom, one last question for you. What is your favorite aspect of private equity? 
I'm a glutton for variety. It is so stimulating and animating to see all of these different business models at work. And it's really a privilege to work with all these great managers. I mean, you know, you always learn so much. It's intellectually stimulating. It's fun. And when it works, it's incredibly gratifying. Yeah, for me, I'd say it's been the intellectual rigor and challenge of the job day in, day out. And then in the context of Baypine, which is an entrepreneurial endeavor in its own way, the chance to build a new firm, really create a new category of private equity around digital transformation, and to help build, grow, and mentor a team as part of that has been incredibly gratifying. Dave, Tom, thanks so much for sharing this uh, really interesting opportunity with Mavis. We appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. 